everybody, and welcome back to Dirty Sexy History. Our first episode came back a week ago, and we have been absolutely floored by the incredible response. We're getting a lot of love from the romance community in particular, which I especially appreciate. I'm actually also a romance writer myself, so I know how hard it is to write a good story and how much work you put into getting your facts straight, particularly for historical romance. So to my fellow authors and romance readers out there, I just want to say thank you. I see you, I love what you do, and Dirty Sexy History is here for you. So in honor of our friends in Romancelandia, today we're taking it back to Regency England. As we know from Bridgerton and endless Austen adaptations, England in the early 19th century was a time of over-the-top manners, pastel dresses, and sexuality so repressed that a mere glance across a crowded ballroom could have Lady What's-It reaching for her smelling salts. Men were debonair and well-behaved, women were sheltered, and no one ever had sex before or outside of marriage. The scandal! Ah, sorry. Okay, look, life was like that for some people, sure, but you'll notice that a lot of the books that people now accept as source material, (coughs) higher, (coughs) excuse me, they were actually written decades later after the Victorians had done their damnedest to censor their parents' swinging habits by burning journals and hiding portraits of their father's mistresses in the attic. There are a lot of misconceptions we need to address about this period, but we can't record all night, so today we're just going to focus on the tip of the whole iceberg of taboo sexuality with a look at the Queen of Pain herself, my patron saint, and hashtag girl boss goals forever, Teresa Berkeley. But before we start, a quick note. When you picture the quintessential Regency gentleman, you probably imagine a soggy Colin Firth coming out of the lake or a reggae Jean Page licking a spoon. Focus. Hey, back here. Okay. But the reality wasn't so steamy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Look, I'm not going to tell you how many Dukes there actually were or how many of them were movie star hot which is literally zero, but I will tell you that gentlemen of this era, that is wealthy and or aristocratic men, were not as well behaved as you would like to believe. Yes, Beau Brummel changed men's fashion for the foreseeable by influencing men to give up bright colors and sumptuous fabrics in favor of suits in every shade of drab, but the look wasn't as uniform as all that. Henry Cope, nicknamed the Green Man of Brighton, had green hair, and another dandy filed his teeth to points like Christopher Walken in Sleepy Hollow. And why not? When you're that rich, you can do what you want. The people clinging hardest to the trappings of gentility tended to be the middle class, whereas the upper class could get away with murder, sometimes literally, as it so happened. Men boxed, rode like jockeys, swore like sailors, lost money on cockfights, and they abused people in the street. They fell in love, too, with their mistresses, sometimes with each other's mistresses. Sex with courtesans or other sex workers wasn't transactional so much as aspirational, and men not only appearing in public with the ladies of the evening, but fighting over the honor of being seen with those with the highest profile was not so very unusual. London at this time had brothels for every budget and inclination, but one of the most famous was a mansion in Soho Square called the White House, which was run by a dominatrix and business genius named Teresa Berkeley. 
Not a lot is known about Teresa Berkeley's early life, but she began her 49-year career as a dominatrix and brothel mistress in the late 18th century. As inventive as she was, Berkeley did not bring BDSM to England. As it happens, the English vice is not particularly English. To clarify, BDSM covers a whole bunch of things from bondage to dominance to sadomasochism, but for the purposes of this episode, we're focusing mainly on flagellation for sexual gratification. There is evidence of people getting off on being flogged all the way back to Mesopotamia. The earliest goddesses were often portrayed as powerful, dominant women, sometimes holding whips, and that contrast between pleasure and pain was an important part of certain rituals for the goddess Inanna. That connection between pleasure and pain took an interesting new dimension as sexuality was repressed and associated with shame under later patriarchal religions who wanted women in a more submissive and much less terrifying supporting role. Dominant women continued appearing in literature, however. Arthurian literature of the medieval period often portrays Guinevere as a kind of man-eating viper, which seems unflattering until you read The Art of Courtly Love, a kind of guide to conducting court affairs by Andreas Capellanus. Through his lens, her passion and over-the-top demands in classics like The Knight of the Cart make a little bit more sense. When she demanded Lancelot cross that sword bridge on his hands and knees, it was degrading, sure, but it was also really hot. The Knight of the Cart was written at the court of Marie de Champagne in France, and France is where some of the earliest erotic literature featuring flogging came from in later years as well. From about 1660, England received such classics as a dialogue between a married lady and a maid, which was originally written in Latin, and also Venue dans la Cloître, or Venus in the Cloister, in 1682. It wasn't until 1748 that John Cleland gave England its first homegrown bonk buster with Fanny Hill, or Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure. A Georgian-era Fifty Shades of Grey, it was credited with drumming up interest in flogging among men and women across the social spectrum. Not that they needed any help. By the early 18th century, flagellation was taking off in a big way. Sex workers specializing in what would later become known as BDSM operated out of body houses dedicated to flagellation or smaller, luxuriously furnished apartments. Flagellation was so popular that it transcended sex work and pornography and appeared in fiction and was discussed seriously as a medical practice. In Aphrodisiacs and Anti-Aphrodisiacs, John Davenport argued that flagellation could have a positive effect on the reproductive organs if applied to the buttocks and surrounding areas due to the system of sympathetic nerves connected to the base of the spine. Back in 1639, German physician Johann Heinrich Maibaum said much the same thing in his treatise on the use of flogging in venereal affairs, and the medical world was slowly catching up. The use of flogging as a treatment for erectile dysfunction led to its gaining a reputation as being a perversion for old men, but lots of people liked it, women included. The people drawn to it tended to be from backgrounds where they had experienced corporal punishment as a child, so basically the whole country at this point, but especially boys who had attended private boarding schools. 
the association between flogging and punishment at school was so close that dominatrixes were frequently referred to as governesses and their establishments were schools or academies. So when you see literature from this period, bear in mind that when they mentioned schools they didn't go to as kids, they might not be talking about a 10-year reunion. Just saying. Still, the popularity of these places didn't mean that they were totally accepted. If caught, the governesses could be arrested and sent to Bridewell, where they were likely to be whipped themselves, or much, much, much worse. An account of a raid on one of these schools from 1701 offers an interesting look at what might have been inside. Quote, a whore-hunting justice found the lecher and his whipstress hiding in a closet, surrounded by a great number of flogging instruments for the secret flagellation of superannuated sodomites, lied with various ribbons of all colors. The rods, some consisting of finer twigs and others thicker, distinguished from one another by the binding of the handle, so that every beast, from the buff-hided leather to the lamb-skinned cully, understood by the color how to call for a scourge that was the most agreeable to the tenderness of his Curtis. There's a new euphemism you don't hear very much these days. That's Curtis, just like the name. If there are any Curtises out there, by the way, I'm really sorry. Anyway, <laughs> the sensitive nature of this service meant that people had to be inventive with how they advertised it. Women willing to administer birchen discipline, as it was called, would set themselves apart by pinning certain flowers to their dresses when attending events at local pleasure gardens like Vauxhall. Now, I wish I could tell you what kinds of flowers they were. We don't actually know, but old floriography books offer a couple of hints. If I were to put together one of these nosegays of lechery, and I might, I would probably use dog roses. Found all over England, they're beautiful, and they have really gnarly thorns. Fittingly enough, according to the secret language of flowers, dog roses mean pleasure and pain. Courtesans practiced in dominance were among the most successful and fashionable throughout the 18th century. Flogging was done by wives, mistresses, sex workers, and even out-of-work actresses trying to pass the time. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> In 18th century England and France, there were a number of private clubs for lesbian flagellants as well. One group of bored housewives who preferred each other's company, they were said to meet at a location on German Street every Thursday of 1792. But for some people, flogging wasn't a pastime, but a calling. Professional dominatrixes raised the bar and made an absolute fortune doing it. I'll be right back with more on that in a moment. But first, over to our new vocabulary segment, Talk Proper with Dr. John. So now you know that Old England was a lot kinkier than they'd have you believe. That means you're going to need to learn the flash lingo to survive outside the ballroom. You're going to need to learn to talk proper. As Jess alluded to, it isn't that surprising that Teresa Berkeley's clientele were obsessed with flagellation. Although individual schools and schoolmasters varied greatly in their approaches to discipline, teachers were inextricably linked in the popular imagination with beating their students. So much so that members of the profession might be referred to as bum brushers or flog botanists. 
Corporal punishment was also meted out for some crimes seen to threaten the social order. From the reign of Henry VIII, a vagabond, or a person with no fixed employment or place to live, could be punished for their perceived idleness and potential criminality by, in the words of the legislation, being tied to the end of a cart naked and beaten with whips till his body be bloody. Horrific as this may sound, the punishment came to be referred to casually as being flogged at the cart's ass, or euphemistically as getting some air and exercise. In the case of anyone taken to prison to nab the tees, to be whipped privately, the count would report that the cove was hewed in the naskin. That is, they were lashed inside Bridewell Prison, changing the hue of their skin in the process. So there was a fair amount of whipping going on, and as you may notice, no shortage of terms for bum or bottom. Some other synonyms for arse included, but were by no means limited to, arse musica, blind cheeks, blind cupid, cooler for the female, double jug for the male, fun or fundament, the prats, round mouth, and windmill. Yes, we are just looking up the rude words in the old dictionaries of rude words. Try the Bodleian Library's First Dictionary of English Slang, or the, warning, profoundly misogynist and deeply bigoted, Captain Francis Gross's 1811 Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, to have a go for yourselves. There are even more terms for genitalia than there are for the posterior. Now, back to Jess with more Teresa B. Thanks, John. That was enlightening. Now, where were we? Teresa Berkeley began her career as a dominatrix when the country was still reeling from Fanny Hill. We don't know much about her early life, but we know she was a devout Christian. Probably the best description of her comes from her contemporary, Mary Wilson. In 1810, Mary wrote that Teresa possessed, quote, that first grand requisite of a courtesan, lewdness. For without, a woman is positively lecherous. She cannot keep up long the affection of it, and will soon be perceived that she only moves her hands or her buttocks to the tune of pounds, shillings, and pence. She could assume great urbanity and good humor. She would study every lech, whim, caprice, and desire of the customer, and had she the disposition to gratify them, her avarice was rewarded in turn." It wasn't only that Teresa saw a hole in the market and decided to, uh, fill it, but she set about building an empire with a kind of dedication that comes from true passion and understanding of an art form. In 1787, she turned the White House, a mansion in Soho Square, into a multi-story sex dungeon. It was kitted out with a dizzying assortment of instruments for torture, everything from whips and switches to oxhide straps studded with nails and nettles. She famously kept her birch switches submerged in water to keep them green and pliant. According to Mary, clients could be birched, whipped, fustigated, scourged, needle-pricked, half-hung, holly-bushed, furs-brushed, butcher-brushed, stinging-nettled, curry-combed, phlebotomized, and tortured. And were they ever... Her place was so popular that she had a full staff of career dominatrixes to help her out, some of whom were also willing to be flogged by clients. Among them, says Mary, were Miss Ring, Hannah Jones, Sally Taylor, One-Eyed Peg, 
bald-cunted Paul and a black girl called Ebony Bent. Unlike other kinds of sex work, being a dominatrix was a calling and it involved quite a bit of on-the-job training. Before they could work as governesses at the White House, these women were apprentices, Berkeley trained in everything from psychology and role-playing to technical skills and, we hope, first aid. Although there was a certain art to swinging a whip, working with Berkeley involved a little more technical know-how. One of the floors of her mansion had a full rope and pulley system for suspending clients from the ceiling. Teresa was an open-minded, inventive genius, but it wasn't until 1828 that she invented the apparatus that still bears her name. In 1828, Teresa opened another establishment at 28 Charlotte Street in Fitzrovia, and this is where she is credited with inventing the infamous Berkeley Horse. We'll put an illustration of this on our Instagram, at Dirty Sexy History, but I'll describe it here as well. It almost looks like a ladder at a 45 degree angle, uh, kind of like a table with strategic holes. <laughs> the client is strapped to it, naked and face down, and the idea was to amplify that contrast between pleasure and pain by having the client experience both at the same time. Berkeley would whip them with their weapon of choice from behind while one of her assistants would sit in front of them, giving something to look at while she, quote, manualized his embolon. I'm going to leave that up to your imagination. <laughs> now, the Berkeley horse was an instant success. Other brothels bought them, and people visited Teresa's establishments to experience them for themselves. Throughout her life, Teresa received countless letters from clients and friends, and she kept them all. Few survive to this day, unfortunately, but the couple that we do have are pretty funny. <laughs> Here's one that was later published in Venus School Mistress or Birchin's Sports. This is uh, <laughs> Georgian gentleman language for, I've been a bad, bad boy. <laughs> All right, guys. To Madame Berkeley, honored lady, I am a most incorrigible naughty boy and have been flogged by the most noted governesses in London without having my vices scourged out of me. I received an introduction from your particular friend, the Earl of G., who had made my blood boil with delight by describing your horse and charming apparatus for tickling the Tobies of us naughty boys. I shall be with you in February, as the Earl and myself are coming over together on our parliamentary duties, but to prevent misunderstanding, I send you my ten beforehand. To be well secured with the chains I bring, one pound for the first blood drawn, two pounds if the blood runs down to the heels, three pounds if it reaches my heels, four pounds if it flows to the floor, and five pounds if you cause me to faint away. I am, dear madam, yours most incorrigibly, Trobenius O'Flunky. <laughs> Do you guys think that's a pseudonym? <laughs> Although Trobenius here wanted to remain fairly anonymous, he didn't have to go as far as all that. Teresa was the very soul of discretion. Her clients were the who's who of the politicians and upper classes, and King George IV was a regular visitor to the house in Fitzrovia. Teresa's success was due in part to her dedication to the privacy of her clients, who in turn seemed to have offered their protection. Unlike other brothel keepers of the time, Teresa was never arrested, and her houses were never raided. 
By the time Teresa died in 1836, she had amassed a staggering fortune of more than 10,000 pounds. By modern standards, she was a self-made millionaire. She had never married or had children, so she left everything to her brother, who was actually a missionary in Australia. When he returned to England and found out how his sister had made her money, he renounced all claim to it and immediately left again. The executor of her will, her friend and possibly a client, a man named Dr. Vance, had been charged with publishing her memoirs after her death, but he didn't. Wanting nothing to do with it, perhaps due to pressure from influential people not wanting their sensitive information to become public record, he washed his hands of it, and all of Teresa's decades of writing and correspondence were destroyed. Teresa's fortune became the property of the crown, and the Berkeley horse is now owned by the Royal Society of Arts in London. Although Teresa's letters did not survive, her legacy did, and BDSM remained popular in brothels and literature throughout the 19th century and beyond. By 1840, only four years after Teresa's death, there were at least 20 known establishments in London dedicated to BDSM. Some of these offered instruction to women wanting to learn for their own private use as well. The appeal certainly transcended gender, in 1870, a woman describes being flogged by another woman in The Romance of Chastisement. She said, Fear and shame went. It was as if I gave myself to the embraces of a man whom I loved so much that I anticipated his wildest desires. But no man was in my thoughts. Rather, Martinette, the governess, was the object of my worship, and I felt that I shared her passion through the rod. The report, as exponents of magnetism call it, it was so strong that I could guess her thoughts. Had she desired me to offer the front of my body to her blows, I should have tried to obey in spite of being bound. A magnetic shudder ran through us both, which increased with every blow. It was, however, quite impossible for me to say whether pain or pleasure predominated. In Paris, a police chief noted finding establishments like Berkeley's in his own city, he wrote, Among certain prostitutes, a veritable arsenal of instruments of torture can be found. Whips, ropes, knotted sticks, leather thongs in which nails have been driven, etc. The dried blood which covers these instruments offers proof that they are not kept merely as playthings and for show, but are actually used for the satisfaction of monstrous lust. In 1899, De Vio's study on flagellation reported that an automatic spanking chair had been invented in America that whipped the posterior with the aid of electricity. Now, I haven't been able to find this, and he might have made it up, but it does kind of sound like something we do, doesn't it? Just automate the whole thing? Oh, well. Anyway, now that you know all about Teresa Berkeley and her wealthy clients, it casts the period in a slightly different light. It's a little redder than it was before. Think about that the next time you read Austin. Maybe the real reason Darcy didn't want to dance was because his ass was still raw from his last trip to London. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I am exhausted. If you enjoyed this episode, hit that sub button to subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps us out. Also, since people have been asking, we have set up a Patreon, which should be up and running this week. For exclusive bonus content and monthly AMAs, check it out and chip in if you can at Dirty Sexy History. We'd love to see you there. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast written, researched, and produced by Jessica Kale and John Jenkins. 
You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com or on Instagram and Twitter at DirtySexyHistory. Today's sources include Georges Bataille, Death and Sensuality, A Study of Eroticism and the Taboo, Leslie Blanche, Forward, Harriet Wilson's Memoirs, Ewan Block, Sexual Life in England, Past and Present, Dan Cruikshank, London Sinful Secret, Fergus Lenane, Madams, Bods and Brothel Keepers of London, Bradford Keyes Mudge, The Horror Story, Women, Pornography, and the British Novel, Anne O. Nomis, The History and Arts of the Dominatrix, Destiny Teardrop, Femdom Pioneer Teresa Berkeley in Femdom Magazine, Mary Wilson, Forward, Venus Schoolmistress, or Birchin Sports. Special thanks this week to our contributor, Lee Denton, who wrote the first post on Teresa Berkeley for our blog. Lee also writes at downstairscook.blogspot.com, so be sure to check her out. See you next week.